Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so thrilled and excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Nadine Nakamura, who is an associate professor of psychology at Laverne University. Dr. Nekumura's research interests relate to understanding how culture impacts behavior and how marginalized populations adapt and cope. In particular, she is committed to understanding the unique needs of multiple minorities. For instance, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, or LGBT people of color, LGBT immigrants. And her primary research interests are with LGBT immigrants and asylum seekers as well as LGBT international issues. She is currently conducting several studies on same-sex binational couples with one partner who is a U.S. citizen and one who is not. And we're so thrilled to have you today, Nadine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I, okay, I'm trying to remember where I met you, and I think it was in Michigan at a summer institute on LGBT psychology. Is that right? I think that's right, yeah. I think it might have been... I was trying to remember this too. I think it might have been 2010. Oh, wow. So this is or, our 10-year anniversary. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it was at the University of Michigan. I think it was um, like an LGBTQ psychology summer institute or something like that. And it was so fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> totally go to one of those again, hang out uh-huh. with a bunch of amazing people. And then I believe we met up in Toronto and we went for brunch or something. I can't mm-hmm. remember because you were living in Vancouver. Yeah, I'm- I remember you had a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> it's been now replaced with my motorbike. <laughs> it was probably more cycling for health back then when I lived closer downtown. Um, and you are now in California mm-hmm. at Laverne University. And I would love if you could tell the listeners if you were in an elevator and people asked to describe your research and your work, you're just going up a couple floors. I always want to say flights. <laughs> How would you describe what you do? Well, I mean, I, I think I would say that my primary identity right now is as an educator. Um, so I think a lot of what I do is to try to help people see the connections between um, different forms of oppression and understand intersectionality. I think that my larger interest is related to um, multiple marginalized um, identities and kind of how that actually plays out in people's lives and experiences. That's amazing. And I also want to give a shout out, and we're going to put a link to the book that we recently published that you were working on this book and kindly um, asked me if I wanted to be a co-editor. And it's with the American Psychological Association. So it's a really big deal. And it's on international perspectives on LGBT mental health. 
I'm really excited. And we were supposed to be doing some promotion of it this summer. Yes. <laughs> at yes. Conferences. <laughs> that's not happening. Uh-huh. I'll put a link for the listeners so they can, they can find a copy if they're interested. And so Nadine, where would you say your, if we had a time machine and we went back in time to where your passion started with regards to focusing on multiple minority identities or LGBT immigration experiences, where would we go on the time machine? Oh boy. I know you've, I you mean, have a very interesting and global background. I know. So I just, am curious. I'm trying to figure out how far in time to take you back. You know, the time machine is very flexible. So if it needs to, it, it can have stopovers, you know, okay. You all right. Well, I mean, I think, I think it all goes back to Sweden. I was born in Sweden. I lived there till I was seven. And I think that's where I was very aware of being different. I mean, you, Listener, you cannot see me, but I do not look like your typical Swedish child and um, was very aware of, of that um, when I was a kid. And I think it made me feel very drawn to other people who were different in any way. So I think that kind of set me up for um, my future career. Um, and then when I came to the United States, I think that acculturating as a child, I was very in tune to um, trying to figure out how to, you know, like how to be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I think I started studying acculturation when I was seven. <laughs> You're so, a definite expert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think that that really kind of set me on this path. And then, you know, I could talk about this for the entire time of the show. So I will fast forward to adulthood. <laughs> we might we could revisit some places along the way uh-huh. this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So bringing it up to more current times, this century, I think that the next thing that really shaped the trajectory of, of my work is um, moving to Canada. Hmm. So, you know, I think that living in different places and having those different experiences, very um, kind of unusual uh, immigrant experiences, I would say. So coming from the United States to Canada, I mean, that's, it's not a, a huge leap in terms of acculturation. But the reason that, that I moved there back in 2007 is because I um, was in a relationship, still I'm in that relationship um, with my now wife. And she was a, she was, she is from Malaysia. And um, we weren't able to be in the U.S. together any longer because wow. of her visa status. And so as soon as I graduated um, with my Ph.D., I moved to another country, which is a really terrible thing to do for your career. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, kind of to be extremely successful. I, well, I mean, I think I scratched my way back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of effort. And so that really kind of shifted the focus of my research because it was a very personal experience for me of, you know, he, here I am doing... Um, LGBT research on HIV at the time. There's a lot of talk about marriage equality happening, but this specific issue of of immigration was really not something that was discussed very much um, in academic circles. Like LGBT and immigration were not Mm -hmm. overlapping at that time. And so I remember being at the American Psychological Association convention and talking to someone because the association had just come out with a resolution supporting marriage equality. And I said, well, what about something about immigration? The person kind of offhandedly said to me, well, there's no research on that. So like the association can't take a stand on that. And I felt I felt very kind of like shut out, but then also kind of, you know, the fire got lit where I was like, well, damn it, somebody should do that. 
you know, and which was similar with the book, you know, somebody else should do that. And then realizing like, oh, I guess I should do that. Um, and so that really, that really um, shifted my research to looking at um, LGBTQ immigration issues and really wanting the conversation to include LGBTQ folks, you know, in a way that it hadn't before. And so then I think it might have been like 2011 or something like that. I um, had the good fortune of being selected to be on um, the APA's uh, Presidential Task Force on Immigration. APA's American Psychological Psychological Association. Association. Yeah, on their Task Force on Immigration to write a report about, you know, the psychological state of the literature on immigration. And so my... my, um, whole reason for applying was like, I want to get a line in, (laughs) I want to get a mention of LGBTQ in the report, um, which was challenging to do because it's all supposed to be based on, you know, the research and there was no research, but, um, you know, found, found the line to get squeeze it in. Well, there was like a few paragraphs. So I was very, I was very happy. I felt like that was my big accomplishment of feeling like, (laughs) you know, you just have to, you just have to slide up to the table and get your, um, you know, put the idea out there. And it's not that people are trying to be exclusionary. It's that they just hadn't thought of it. And so when you mentioned the, the omission, then people oftentimes are interested in, in making sure that that gets included. So a lot of times I feel like my agenda is like getting in the room so that I can mm. say, the, say the thing. And then a lot of times it's just, you know, the, you just have to get into those spaces um, in order to be included. I think that's so interesting. And I mean, I'm really happy that you're constantly looking for ways to get in the room to mention people and issues that might not be on the table. And I wonder, it it kind of leads me to the first stigma question, um, which is why stigma matters. And I think sometimes we think of stigma as always being an overt action, but other times I, I think, and you know, maybe this has got some related to what you're saying, it is also works by erasing or omitting people or certain issues. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are with, with how, you see the importance of, of, of LGBTQ inequality and equality and, and why this should be something that everybody should start thinking about and being moved by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the omission piece around stigma, I think, is really important. And it's a lot of times, it, a lot of times it looks like, well, we're not talking about that right now. Mm-hmm. We're talking about this bigger and more important issue and you know your issue is on the periphery which is essentially saying like your oppression is mar- on the margins um it's you're so marginalized that we don't even <laughs> want to talk about you um and so i think a lot of times it's just trying to encourage that conversation well don't forget about you know this group of people you know and a lot of times it's like well this group of people who who doesn't even have a, a voice in the conversation mm. And, you know, if I, if I can go back to, to our book, I think that's... Our um, great book, our amazing, <laughs> awesome book. <laughs> I, think, I think that's how, how it really fits in. Um, you know, this, this attempt to encourage a broadening of the conversation about, like, what is LGBTQ mental health? We have a lot of literature to pull from in North America to tell us what that looks like. And I think what the book is trying to kind of interrogate or question, challenge is 
hey, who says it looks this particular way? You know, just Mm -hmm. because we have the microphone and we have the money to be able to say what the agenda is or say what's important, that we probably are leaving out a whole bunch of voices. Mm -hmm. That was what was so interesting about this book. So there's people who are listening There's chapters from Russia, there's chapters from Peru, there's chapters from India. I'm going to be forgetting like Jamaica. There's chapters from everywhere outside of North America. And it's really interesting that there are some similar narratives that run through these threads that that kind of run through, but there's also very much differences between the contexts. I think that it's it's really an interesting thing to think, oh, most of what we know about mental health among LGBT people is in North America. What does it look like in other places? So I think I think that book is really interesting to see how are people coping and managing and how are families involved, not involved, and friends, and how are people mm-hmm. just moving through the world in a little bit of a different way? And, yeah. and, and what can we learn from that? Because I feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot to learn from everybody, and especially when we haven't been listening to people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it becomes really relevant with so much international movement that when people come to North America from a different place, and they have their LGBTQ identity in a new place, there's kind of an expectation of of what that's supposed to look like. Mm. You know, that if you're a good queer person, you're supposed to do these things. And you're supposed to be comfortable with this particular culture. And I don't think we recognize that it is it is a culture and it probably looks different in other places. So I think that's one reason that it's really important for us to be considering how one size probably doesn't fit all and that it's probably not our place to tell everyone to live their LGBTQ life in the same way that that we do because that would make us feel more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. And also that what feels joyful and celebratory might be different in different places. Mm It doesn't always have to look like, it it might even be different in in one place. So, Mm -hmm. So some people might love marching in the parade and other people are like, okay, I just want to sit here and drink some, some coffee, you know, and, mm-hmm. and enjoy mm-hmm. my, my newspaper. And, I'm, yeah. and they're both doing what brings them joy. You know, it's not necessarily that we're all doing the same thing to live how we want to live. So I think that's really cool. I'm wondering if you could maybe backtrack a little bit. And because the next question is, is really about helping the listener to imagine the perspective of somebody experiencing stigma or discrimination. Could you talk a little bit about some maybe examples from your work with LGBT immigrants or asylum seekers? Because I know that's something that you're really passionate about. Obviously anonymized, but just sort of <laughs> walk us through what 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 does that mean? It means someone's coming and they're seeking asylum because they're not accepted in their own country or they're coming. Um, just as asylum seekers, and then they're coming out when they arrive as being LGBT. Just wondering if you could if you could give us some examples from your work. Did discrimination at home make them seek asylum, or are some people seeking asylum because of conflict, and then they come mm-hmm. and then they come out as being LGBT? I'm sure mm-hmm. there's so many different stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it can look different in a lot of ways, but I think oftentimes people are fleeing because there's, you know, some kind of threat to them. So that's, you know, the, the question of like, why would you pick up and go through a pretty treacherous experience to try to get uh, 
to, to try to live in a new place. And so for most folks, it's because they just can't stay um, mm-hmm. because it's too dangerous to stay. Um, but it, it's not always that way. I've also heard stories where people are already here for whatever reason. You know, maybe they came as a student and during that time they, they came out to themselves. And so um, now they're kind of recognizing that if I want to live my life back in my home country, it's going to look really different. And if mm-hmm. I try to live my life in this way, I won't be able to. So I think that, you know, how people kind of arrive at that is complicated. And it's that kind of combination or that interaction, I guess, between cultures. So, you know, you're here and you're kind of seeing that you have some other options that you might want to uh, explore. And then the challenge, at least in the U.S. with seeking asylum, is that you're supposed to do it within a year. So that's really interesting that there's always these different journeys um, for the people that you're working with for seeking asylum. And I imagine that they might also experience stigma being an immigrant and an LGBT person and an Mm -hmm. LGBT immigrant in the U.S. or wherever they're actually trying to seek asylum. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I've done some research in that area, actually in Canada, um, looking at uh, Asian men's experience being LGBT or being gay and bisexual, uh, queer, um, and you know what what the experience is like, uh, kind of navigating multiple marginalized identities, you know, where you're, where you might not feel accepted in your ethnic community. And so you may feel like you have to hide a part of who you are in order to be accepted there. I think a lot of times the Western narrative is like, we'll reject those people because they don't love the real you. But, you know, rejecting your culture is not Mm. something that a lot of people like want to do because that's important to them as well. So having to choose, you know, which part of you is most important to you and like, burn everything else down. Like that doesn't really work when you have multiple identities that are really salient and important to you. So I think that's a narrative that people have to sort of fight against. And then within the LGBTQ community, you know, a lot of times there are covert, but also overt messages that are like, you're not welcome here. We don't want you here. And so having to navigate that as well, it's like, well, where is that space where people can feel really accepted? Mm-hmm. So I think that when you're thinking about immigrants, a lot of times the the narrative around that is, well, send immigrants to their ethnic communities because that's where they're going to get support. And that's oftentimes not the case. Um, and I think it can be really scary if you're an asylum seeker. Sometimes, you know, people in that community might be people who like have oppressed you or like are adjacent to the people who have oppressed you. And so, you know, where does that where does that then leave you? It, it's so interesting and heartbreaking in some way that I've heard a very similar narrative about not being able to be your full self for so many years because of the intersection of racism and LGBT stigma and HIV stigma. Mm-hmm. I remember a long time ago doing a focus group with lesbian, bisexual, and queer women living with HIV, and they were all from um, African or Caribbean countries. We didn't, it wasn't intentionally designed that way, and they were all, um, so living with HIV, uh, immigrant experience, and lesbian, bisexual, queer woman experience, and they were like, so we have to, when we go to support groups for women living with HIV, we have to pretend we're straight. (laughs) When we go to LGBT groups, we have to pretend we're HIV negative. And then because of all the HIV stigma, they're like, there is literally nowhere mm-hmm. where we can go and be all of us. Mm-hmm. And I, 
And I've never forgotten that. And every time, you know, I'm reminded that there's so many people who have to kind of compartmentalize different facets of themselves as best as you can, because how really possible is that? Mm -hmm. And I think this is why, you know, our book is about mental health. This is why people are stressed out and and have uh, challenges because they're not able to to be fully who they are. And so of course it's going to impact you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that just spells out so nicely, like how stigma impacts our mental health, because, you know, there's enough other things that are going on uh, that are difficult Mm -hmm. to navigate, which is why you're trying to seek those spaces in the first place. And then when those places are rejecting or that you're really aware of, oh, I need to present this particular way in order to get acceptance, you know, when there's no place for you to feel fully able to be who you are and to be accepted, that's, it's stressful. It's, it's depressing. It causes anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder what your thoughts are with regards to what we can do about it. How can we, how can we work towards a world where people can be themselves without fear of stigma, discrimination, violence, oppression? How can we start moving to a better world? Like, how can we do that? That's such a big question. <laughs> I know, I know. I like, what is the solution? Uh-huh, yes. And then you're going to grab it and yeah, then, you can save, then you can save the world. <laughs> I kind of feel like somebody, I read somewhere, it's about chipping away, right? Just to mm-hmm. chipping away. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes you could burn something down and build something new. Other mm-hmm. times it's just, okay, how can we all start chipping away at this problem? Or, or just knocking things down and rebuilding things. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think in the current context of, you know, everything that's happening right now, you know, with racism being so kind of in our awareness, which is good, and with COVID-19 and seeing health disparities with that, like there's just so many things that have, are kind of kicked up. Like I think seeing inequality is just so, it's like blaring right now. And I feel in some ways a relief that it's blaring. Like it's mm-hmm. it's disruptive and, you know, I I you know, if I could pause it for a minute, I think that would be nice. But I think at the same time, the fact that we can actually talk about it instead of just kind of brushing it aside, which I think is how we got into this problem in the first place, is just not addressing it and trying to just, you know, put on the rose-colored glasses and like just hope for the best. Like that strategy doesn't actually work very well, it doesn't seem. (laughs) Really? Um, (laughs) So I think the fact that it's in everybody's face feels like a really good opportunity to try to do something to address the problem. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, everybody has to take the responsibility to try to, you know, be self-reflective and figure out like, how am I contributing? So, you know, in what ways, if we want to bring it back to stigma, you know, in what ways am I contributing to stigma, the stigma that other people are experiencing? And how can I make corrections so that I don't do that? I don't think anybody like, well, most people probably don't want to be harming other people in this way. Mm-hmm. It's just something that they don't think about, you know, mm-hmm. that they just, it's such a part of their, it's more part of their unconscious. So bringing all of this to light, I feel like gives us a great opportunity. And then, you know, just to kind of swing in a completely different direction. I think that for me, you know, being someone who is, you know, an educator who does research, you know, I'm also a parent and I have little kids. I have six-year-olds. 
And I think that having- They are so cute and so (laughs) smart. I love watching them on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) They, like, it gives me a real opportunity to really think about how to kind of instill some of this thinking before, not before it's too late. Like, I don't think it's ever too late, but I, I see so many students in my classroom who are like mad because they feel like they've been lied to. So they are mad that, you know, the history that they learned didn't expose them to all of these things Mm. that they are, you know, now thinking about and, you know, how these systems of oppression are, you know, hurting their future you know, potential future clients, they're like horrified and they're upset. And so we talk a lot about in the classroom about, you know, how we're socialized around, you know, basically around differences, but especially around race and that the popular way to approach that in the past has been like to be colorblind. So Mm -hmm. like, oh no, we're all just people, which is very, you know, dismissive because, you know, we, of course we are all people, but that doesn't, (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't negate the fact that, you know, people are treated differently. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to be really intentional with my kids about... And how do you talk to a sick... I'm, I'm sure some listeners are wondering, how is... You know, and I've been reading that it's not too early to ever start talking about skin color and differences and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and marginalization and, mm-hmm. you know, racism. So I, I'm wondering how you do that with your... You have six-year-old twins, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that the first step is really for the adult or the parent to like do this work for themselves. So Mm -hmm. like, you're not going to be comfortable talking about racism with your, with your kids if you're not comfortable talking about racism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if these conversations are, are new to you and you have children, I really think that the best thing you can do for your kids is to, is to get comfortable and not, not test those conversations with them. Because I think so, so many times kids respond to how the adults are acting. Mm -hmm. And if the adults are acting like this is scary, this is weird, this is something um, really uncomfortable, then kids learn like, oh gosh, you know, when I mentioned race, my parents got really uncomfortable and I don't want to make my parents uncomfortable. So this is a bad topic that we shouldn't talk about. Mm. Um, kind of like sex. Goes, exactly. Like, yeah, if you're exactly. not comfortable talking about sex, then mm-hmm. you're probably not going to talk about it to your kids very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. And so I think that, you know, the more that we can, um, when you have little kids, a lot of times parents will start out by like trying to have books that highlight diversity. Like, oh, look, there's different colors of skin. And Mm -hmm. like, that's a good starting point, I think, when you have like really little kids. But eventually, I think you kind of have to name the elephant in the room and talk about, you know, the fact that people are different and that people are treated differently. And I found this book. It happens to be on my desk because there is no separation of home and work (laughs) in this world right now. (laughs) So it's called The Power Book which oh. I thought it's what is it, who has it and why? And when I saw it, I was wow. like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because I think some, when I'm teaching adults, we talk a lot about how power is an important part about mm-hmm. you know prejudice plus power equals racism. So if you don't talk about power, you really are missing like a huge part of mm. understanding like who gets to stigmatize who? Well, I mean, power has something to do with that or else we would all equally be able to navigate the world, right? And it doesn't work that way. And, and also that if it's just, if, if power is involved, it's just, oh, you're being sensitive. Like mm-hmm. it didn't mean to hurt your feelings. It didn't mean mm-hmm. to step on your toe. Whereas mm-hmm. that's like, well, actually power means like you're actually holding my foot down. You know, mm-hmm. like you're mm-hmm. actually, I'm actually stuck in this specific place. We're not stuck, but you're, 
inhibiting my freedom or my opportunities. So mm-hmm. I think it's, I really appreciate you brought power into it. I yeah. Think we so that was, that was like a, power. <laughs> yeah. And that was like a really fun conversation to have with my kids because the book starts by talking about like how adults have power over children. So it's like being able to explain it in these really simple terms and then being able to, to point out different examples of how this looks in other facets of our lives, you know, based on identities, gender, sexual orientation, race, et cetera. And I also really just like this idea of kind of highlighting how oppression, you know, that there's so much similarity between different forms of oppression so that it's not like, you know, if you're going to have a talk with your kids about racism, it's not just racism, it's also all these other isms that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And for them to be able to kind of appreciate that, you know, it's not just, say, Black people who experience racism, and which I think then puts the problem on that group of people. You know, you're Mm -hmm. talking about homophobia and you're like, you know, you know, gay people experience discrimination. Then it kind of feels like, well, who's discriminating against them? Like that part is (laughs) is myth. Yeah, it's so interesting. We're making, like we talked earlier, like we're omitting the role of the people doing Mm -hmm. uh, the stigmatizing. They somehow become invisible, right? Yeah, right. All we see is a group of the the stigmatized people, not the stigma people stigmatizing. Right. Not, yeah. Not necessarily like they're always discreet. Like there are ways in which people are discriminating and discriminated against. So, but I think that's a really interesting point. I'm going to get this book because I I really <laughs> like being able to have conversations with all different ages of people, and mm-hmm. and also since I think kids' books are just awesome because they just clearly state things, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes with interesting metaphors or things like that or different examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but I think, I think that is such an important point that the focusing just on the, essentially the victim, it's very easy to victim blame. Like, well, just, you know, brush it off or like, don't take it so personally, as you said, you know, and it, it, it I think it adds more stigma. Like, you know, you're supposed to be resilient. You're supposed to thrive despite all of these bad things. And if you're, (laughs) if you can't, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think there's ways that we might forget that power is involved and what we're not naming is the people doing, maybe doing the harm. Like I remember teaching a class a while back and someone said, why don't we have any articles on whiteness? and how whiteness operates and is problematic. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting because all the articles are on racism. So it's not on who is necessarily doing the racism, it's on the harms of it. So I think that that's Mm -hmm. a really great lens. I wonder if there's any things before we get to the wild card questions where listeners can learn about the real Nadine. Is there any last thoughts on stigma you wanted to share with the listeners? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) You've already shared a lot and I can't wait to read that book. Okay. So we're going to go jump into the wild cards. Are you doing any binging of any kind of Netflix, Amazon, any shows, any movies? You know, I was, and then I started reading a bunch of books. So, um, any good ones? Well, I mean, you know, I'm reading like The New Jim Crow by Mm -hmm. Michelle Alexander right now. I'm reading Me and White Supremacy uh, by Layla Saad. And I think, I think that's it for now. But I did do a lot of Netflix binging before that. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to take a break. (laughs) The book, those books sound excellent too. They're on my list. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, 
gosh, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember back. One that I really enjoyed is called Never Have I Ever, and I think it's on Netflix. And I think it's the one um, from Mindy Kaling about a. She's great. Yeah, it's about a South Asian girl, American girl, uh, living in California. She's in high school, and it's kind of like just her. It's kind I of like a, a teen, a teen comedy oh, kind of. I love teen movies. I love young adult fiction. Yeah, I love all. Oh those yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I like young adult fiction too. Um, and so yeah, it's it's like a it's a series. I don't know how many episodes there are, like nine, but I watched them like oh, in a few days, and okay. it was really you know hits on some cultural issues, and I think there's like a coming out uh, storyline, and yeah, it was really Amazing. fun. Amazing. I talking about young adult stuff. I watched The Hate You Give, and then I mm-hmm. I have bought the book, and then I bought mm-hmm. the uh, the next book. I'm blanking on the author, but uh, it's called The Hate You Give on the Come Up or something. So I will- okay, yeah, I need to read that one. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I'm like, I love those books too. Uh huh. No, just fine. It's 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 fun to read and also really powerful. Okay, so the second question is, if you could go for dinner with anyone anywhere in the world, living or dead, who would you take? And where would you go? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great question. I'm not sure who I would want to go to this dinner with. <laughs> hey, where, do you want to start off with the place first then? <laughs> like, where would I go? Yeah. Okay. So there used to be this restaurant. I, I should probably just go to a restaurant in Sweden. But when I was growing up in Southern California, there was a restaurant called Gustav Anders. And it was a Swedish restaurant. And they did a really amazing Christmas smorgasbord. And we used to go when I was a kid and then it shut down. I think they moved back to Sweden. (laughs) And so that's where I would go. Who would I go with? I mean, at this point, I'd probably go with my wife (laughs) (laughs) and my kids because we do everything together now because we're in quarantine. (laughs) Um, And I don't, yeah, I don't know how to interact with other people at this point. No, because then I could just focus on like the food. If I if I were to bring like a really important, profound person that I've always wanted to spend time with, I think I'd be too like anxious to eat. So or you just get it. too forget into it. The food. To forget talk. it. We're gonna just eat the food. Yes. <laughs> I went to Sweden for the first time right before all the borders started shutting down. That's right. In, yeah. In March, I flew to. Stockholm, and then I mm-hmm. took the train to Linköping, and I thought it was so beautiful. And there was really just a different, different way of organizing the university there. Mm. There was like it wasn't by discipline; it was by thematic area. So they had huh. like one that was on gender, and it could have people doing all different kinds of disciplines, but they're housed together. So instead oh, of wow. like biology or social sciences or history, it was like anybody working on Tema. It's called Tema. Tema's like. I'm not going to say it. I'm like, listeners, I don't know how to to speak Swedish. But anyways, (laughs) I will send you the link. But it it was really cool because it's just a way of organizing differently that so that it's really is multidisciplinary. (laughs) Wow. That's so interesting. I I had no idea. I would like to go back again. I thought, you know, especially riding the, and I did the train to Copenhagen from there, like through Mm -hmm. Malmo. Mm-hmm. It was a little exciting because there was too much wind on the bridge in Malmo. So like, oh, no. this, the, the train just like stopped and then there was the bridge was closed for like six hours. Wow. Like, oh my gosh. That's unfortunate. I'm in a train station here. It was ex- I mean, it was a little exciting. But, uh, <laughs> so I'll have to reach out to you next time I go if, if I go 
when the borders ever open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, okay. So the last question is, is there the last wild card question? Is there any helpful feedback or advice that you've received that you'd like to share with, with the listeners? Something that inspired you, a quotation, story? I mean, I think in the current kind of political context of trying to navigate like how to live how to live life right now the thing that has been really helpful for me or like orienting for me is to is to try to balance how much energy you're putting into things hmm. so i think there was a time not that long ago a few years ago where i felt very much like like it was all or nothing like if i was committed to a cause i had to be completely immersed in it and resting was for um, selfish people or something like that. You know, like I was holding myself up to some really unattainable standard um, where I felt like if there was suffering, then I should be suffering. Mm. And obviously that was not good for my mental health or my health. <laughs> and so I think I'm realizing that in order for it to be sustainable, there has to be some balance and that it's not possible to take on, you know, even if I tried to take on a lot of pain that is happening out in the world right now, it wouldn't actually solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of a something that I've been, I guess, reflecting on and trying to, I guess, demonstrate for other people in my life as well. So like thinking about my students and seeing that a lot of my students are very active right now and they're very engaged. And so really kind of wanting to, to model for them that it's a long game mm -hmm. and there, there's a lot to be done. There is some progress that we should celebrate and there is a lot that we still have to be angry about. So I think celebrating is also something that I, I just try to do in, in my life in general. So definitely, um, you know, that if you wait too long, um, <laughs> you, you kind of have to, you know, you can't like celebrate once you get tenure, like you have to celebrate like after every semester ends that you survived. Yes. Um, because otherwise, by the time you finally get to that big victory, you're like too tired or too broken to be able to enjoy it. So I love I think that was in our wedding vows when I got married. We said what we vowed to do is to celebrate all the little successes. Mm -hmm. Oh, you submitted something that you wanted to submit or you made this track and you released it or you, mm -hmm. you got a gig or you, you know, because my, my partner's a mu music producer. So, mm -hmm. and you know, for me, oh, this article, you got a revision. Yay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's like, how can we accumulate celebrations to keep mm -hmm. us fueled because it can mm -hmm. be, you know, the, and that what you, you said, you reminded me of two things. One was Dr. Tonya Petit, who is, was a guest on a podcast for this series. She also talked about the importance of rest mm -hmm. and how, what changed for her when she realized that in the struggle for social justice, that it's okay for individuals to rest because there is like a collective energy working mm -hmm. around that. And then when you said it's a long game, another podcast guest coming up, Dr. Steph Frall once told me, I mean, he's told me this several times, he keeps reminding me, Carmen, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you need to pace yourself because mm -hmm. I could also go like a little like full force and then end up feeling kind of burnt out or you end up mm -hmm. getting sick or something like that. So I, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you saying that because sometimes it does feel like overwhelming with the amount of injustice that we want to and 
or pain that we want to address? Mm-hmm. And how can we keep doing that? Like, and I think maybe the celebration, the rest, the seeing this mm-hmm. is like a life's journey, you know, you gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta be around for it. It's going to be decades. I mean, hopefully we can solve it all like soon, but yeah. <laughs> it's a protracted problem. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also just thinking about how we um, kind of impose this pressure and this sometimes harm like on ourselves that the work is is never done. And I think especially like for people who are in academia, and it's probably true in other disciplines as well, or other, you know, walks of life, but there's always going to be more to do. Um, and you, <laughs> right? o- you, know, you always kind of, you, you become, you've become acculturated to, in some ways, like being your own oppressor, where you have to constantly be looking for the next mountain to climb. And that if you take a break, if you rest, then you are, you're going to become obsolete or, you know, there's going to be a gap in your productivity. And it's like, what is that? What, what is this world that we're living in where we are holding ourselves up to the these really um, harsh standards, like, you know, capitalistic (laughs) standards, right? That if we have to constantly be producing something, the pipeline is so important. And it's like, it gets to the point where no one is telling you that anymore, but you're telling yourself. Totally. um, And so you can never be satisfied. And that's- Are you in my brain right now? I feel like you're like in my brain. No, I think I, I can't believe you're saying this because it's exactly my experience. I, I just this constant like, okay, mm-hmm. what's the next thing? And and you know, mm-hmm. we have to. We're always supposed to be doing something, and part mm-hmm. of it's like, hmm, what would happen if we rested mm-hmm. and celebrated? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, or what if this is it? I mean, now I am talking to you <laughs> because I know how like successful you are and how much you've done. And it's like, if this was all that you had to give, like, that's really great. And thank you. And you've made a contribution. But I think there's never that feeling until, I I mean, maybe when people retire, but that's like, when do people do that anymore? (laughs) Um, And so never feeling like you've done enough and then we all die. Like, that's so sad. It is so sad. (laughs) And, you know, I, I read, you know, the the cover of books that are like things, you know, when people are older and they're like, things I wish I had done when I was younger. Not mm-hmm. a saying I'm so young myself, but they were, they were always like, you never wish you had been more productive or you had published mm-hmm. like 10 more papers. Right. You wish you had taken vacations. Uh-huh. You wish you had spent more time with the people you love or, or, or deepened your friendships or traveled mm-hmm. when you, when you were if you wanted to travel when you were healthy enough, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So right. Really, yeah. That to me is like, oh, I, how do we have this life that, that for those of us who are doing social justice work, that we also carve out the spaces for joy and celebration mm-hmm. and rest and, and see that as being necessary, you know, mm-hmm. not an add on or like, a, you know, as it's being part of the larger puzzle of our life, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, how do we stop oppressing ourselves? I think is, is one of the, the personal projects, right? That's something I think that we have to be attentive to. You are so awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so thrilled and it's so great to see you. I feel like we, we've been emailing a lot and to see your face on the screen is wonderful. We are on Zoom, listeners, don't worry. We're not seeing each other. Nadine's in California <laughs> and I'm in Toronto. But we were supposed to be seeing each other in Prague this summer. Yes, we were next at this month. Yes. LGBT psychology conference, mm-hmm. which hopefully we will be doing next year. Yes, fingers crossed, 2021. Fingers crossed. So everybody, 
Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Nadine Nakamura. I'm going to have a link to her work, uh, her bio, and our book in case you're interested in looking at it. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Now I'm listening